if this goes on too long, it could kill Hollywood. Uh, because the sheer delay of getting anything into production, getting it on the screen, would be so long that the revenues coming back to the studios uh, would be so tardy that it could crush some of the studios. Right, and you say studios, and then I realize they're all intertwined, but think about scripted television as well as movies. I mean, if there's if they're not around, people will find something else to do, and that's where I think the Netflixes of the world come in, um, and anyone who has a lot of content that's already there, and that becomes the habit, and that was the concern of the movie industry post-pandemic. Did we get into the habit of staying at home? And I think that's going to be a concern, are we going to get into the habit of being on Netflix and, I don't know, TikTok and a couple of others instead of watching scripted television and movies? And I think that's a big concern if this strike lasts long enough to where habits change. Yes. And we saw habits begin to change radically during COVID. Right. It, it could happen again in a different form. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, July 21st installment of the Silicon Insider, the only uncensored look at life and business in the Valley. My name is Mike Malone. I'm here with special contributor Scott Budman of NBC Bay Area. Our producer is Jordan Henderson, and our host is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Okay, so I want to talk first about venture capital. I know, I know you, you you were off on an interesting story today, and I want to get a little, little verisimilitude from you. But right now, let's talk about, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal, front page on Monday, and it essentially said that VCs, after a prolonged bear market that we've been talking about, have begun to scale back on the size of their funds, uh, basically uh, lowering the value of the companies that they've invested in and their, and their prospects look worse. And essentially saying to people who put money into those funds, you're probably not going to get anything back. If you're lucky, you might break even. And they're now going for much smaller funds. I mean, a few years ago, they were astronomical. I mean, I'm looking at one SoftBank. Do you remember SoftBank's first vision fund when it was announced? $100 billion. And I think we, I, I think at some point we talked about the VCs with these giant funds could only invest in late round what they thought were sure winners, and it was damaging startups in the Valley. Well, now they're getting their comeuppance because they just can't, there aren't any good investments out there for that kind of money. You know, $50 million, $100 million, $200 million investments haven't paid off, especially in a market that nobody's going public. So what are the implications of this, you think? I mean, I think we've seen the implications, and I, I don't want to say that we journalists are always um, just enough behind the curve to where when we say something's over, it's just beginning, or vice versa. Um, you know, a lot of journalists left the business to sell real estate right in 2008, you know, which proved we were just wrong. Um, and so not to say the Wall Street Journal is wrong here, but Let's back up just a second. Yes, those gigantic funds are what gave us Uber and WeWork, companies that ended up being overvalued by the VCs compared to where they stood and still stand in the public market. 
not to mention all those other companies that never went public. And you're absolutely right. I think, though, after that comeuppance happened and has been happening, we're starting to see a little optimism. And I know you've accused me of being too optimistic in the past, but look, I think we're going to see in the second half of the year a little bit, at least a little bit, of the return of the IPO market. Just a couple of days ago, Oddity, a company combining technology and cosmetics out of Israel, went public, and boom, it had a huge rise, something like 40%. And this is kind of an AI play, kind of a cosmetic play. Uh, you know, everyone's talking about the Mitsu company. The more you look at it, the weirder it looks. Right, and it's this sort of science and makeup. It's almost like how everyone's getting excited about Barbie and Oppenheimer, you know, hitting at the same time in the movie theaters. But I think it's an example of if you can come up now with a company that's exciting and, you know, sex appeal and all that, you can go public. And I think we're going to see more of that. But part of the reason we are going to see more of that is that these companies and these VC funds got more disciplined. They learned their lesson from the soft banks and the WeWorks. And so I think that discipline, my prediction is by the end of this year, uh, or at least the second half, will start to be rewarded. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, look, the stock market has done well. Some of these tech valuations are at record highs. And that usually leads companies to go into the public market. So I'll bet we see more IPOs from here on out. Well, you know, I th first of all, I was taken by a line in the story that said, as startups swelled in size, venture capitalists wrote massive tech to companies that looked like little like the scrappy young businesses that venture, the venture industry was designed to support. Now, I'm not sure if that's not backwards. I mean, the VCs began basically after 2008, moving down the food chain and only putting big money into big startup, supposed startup, but basically B and C round companies and left the little guys stranded and they've been stranded for several years now uh it won't break my heart if the vs cut down their funds go back to what they were originally designed for and instead of soliciting these overblown business plans go back and go up the chain again to series a investments you know series b where they're just putting and a few million dollars to interesting startups and putting it into a lot more of them and really getting this the entrepreneurial fervor back in the valley rather than these swinging for the fences, you know, investment funds and investments themselves. Right. I think that'd be a salutary thing for this town. I agree. And I think they got burned swinging for the fences in recent years. One thing that tells me that that is happening is when I interview HR people who are looking closely at the tech industry, they say, okay, a lot of those big tech companies, they've been laying off by the thousand, by the 10,000. Where is the job growth? The job growth is in these startups because they're getting money on the C level and the level A and the level B to where, you know, they're not swinging for the fences yet, but they have enough to hire a lot of people. Right. And that's always a good sign for Silicon Valley and beyond that startups are hiring and growing gradually and maybe not swinging it for the fences yet, and maybe looking more for an exit where they get bought by a big company, but at least they're growing again and getting some of that VC funding. And again, that is, I've always said, the lifeblood of Silicon Valley. And it's, yeah, it has always been that. And I'm seeing too many new startups, interesting startups right now, who are having trouble getting to that 
second round. I mean, they, they've gotten the angel money. Maybe they got the first round, but they just can't find the money anywhere to go to the next step and become real companies with products and all that. And, you know, I hope that the VCs catch on and calm down and go back to the blocking and tackling of making these little companies successful. Because if they can, if they can lower the mortality rate of startups by half, we would have another renaissance in this valley because this is where it happens. And this is where everything's designed to help little companies get big. And we kind of forgotten that in recent years because of these mega firms, you know, that are kind of dominating everything in life in the valley right now. Right. And honestly, it's hard to see a time in the near future when those mega firms don't dominate everything in the valley. But, you know, you're looking at a few years at a time and that's on the micro level uh and you know vcs like anything else they follow the money and if the money isn't there they close the pocketbook a bit if startups start to get hot you start to see that funding and i think we've seen a few lean years and that makes sense and now i think we might see some strength come out of startups and some perhaps strong exits and that means more startups get funded yeah that would be exciting to see that again I mean, I, I can't tell you the last time I've talked to somebody that was had worked at a big company and said, oh, I'm quitting and join a startup. I mean, you used to hear that every day. I used to hear that in Little League games, you know, the dad's sitting in the bleachers. I don't hear it anymore. You know, now it's like, oh, yeah, I landed safely at Cisco or, you know, Facebook. I want to, I want to see that kind of excitement around here again. I, I think you'll start to see that. I've, I've started to hear that. It really depends on you know, your risk tolerance, and even to an extent, your age. I mean, maybe people at a certain age are used to, you know, we're used to hearing people that land safely somewhere because by now they've got a mortgage and a family. But I still hear from young entrepreneurs who are saying, all right, this company's too big for me now. I love the excitement and the, you know, caffeine rush of a startup. And you hear that a lot, let's say, in the AI world right now. Uh, and, and even in the security world where we've seen a lot of startups and, and that's exciting. And I, I hope they stay I hope they make enough money to afford to live here and sort of build that out gradually. Yeah, well, I think a few, you know, billionaires created by hot, a hot startup will get everybody, get the land rush going again. Right. Light candles. Uh, okay. Yesterday, you were out at Netflix, and there's a lot of news. Oh, Netflix got pretty quiet there for a while. It's had a great run-up so far this year. I think it was up 60% in their stock value. And yet yesterday, you know, the stock fell, I think, 7 or 8%. And the feeling was that it would, might be due because the, you know, the, the stock buyers had been over-exuberant. Exuberant. It might be because the writer strike will keep uh, them from, from Netflix from being able to offer a lot of new content. It might be because of that changed password policy where, you know, they a lot of people quit because of it. Uh, some say that the news, the stock drop is good because Netflix is going to have so much money left over from not producing TV shows that it can do a massive stock clawback and, uh, you know, play that game. What do you think? You were out there on the line with all the all the protesters that yesterday, what's it like out there? And which of these scenarios you think is correct? 
Yeah, just to be clear, I was covering the protest. I'm not. I'm not striking. I'm not. Sorry. I'm not in the union. Um, but covering it, and it was interesting. I've been waiting, uh, for protesters to come to the actual headquarters. Uh, there have been really big crowds outside Netflix and the other studios in L.A., uh, New York, I believe even Chicago. Um, it's it, they're getting gawkers. They're getting gawkers too. Now that it's not just the Writers Guild of America, which is just a bunch of ugly writers, but actually movie star starting to come out and walk the picket line. I would think that would get a lot of fans showing up too. You know, it's gotten a lot of coverage, especially in the LA market where and, and New York, where so many of these protests are happening. And for the first time uh, on the 20th, uh, there were some uh, protesters outside Netflix's headquarters, some sag after, but also the South Bay Labor Union um, had organized some some you know, the fellow uh, unions to say, hey, let's support our brothers and sisters in the entertainment industry. And you're right, <laughs> that, that big a line, uh, and they joked about it, wasn't as, as attractive, perhaps, as the movie stars. But it's impressive to me that you would see other labor unions saying, hey, let's take time off of work to hold a sign and support SAG-AFTRA. And so you saw that even in Silicon Valley on a smaller scale. But well, you know, the trade unions show up. They know how to do it. They got nice signs. They've got tables that know how much, how many drinks to bring. They have umbrellas. You know, those are really professional. You know, strikes. Right. You know, they know what time it is. But also, as someone pointed out to me, um, some of these labor unions do work on movie sets because they build the sets. They handle the sort of back end stuff, the plumbing, all of that, and. So they are necessary, too, and perhaps they would be heard by a prolonged downturn in the movie business. As for Netflix, you bring up a lot of different points, and they are really at an interesting place right now. They're still making a lot of money. They're still prepared to spend a lot of money. But I have a feeling that while the studios all but shut down during a strike, and if it gets prolonged, it's really going to hurt the movie industry, um, Netflix has a ton of content already there. And remember, it wasn't that long ago when we weren't able to go to the movies for a couple of years, right? Because we couldn't right. get inside a movie theater. And whose stock went up the most? It was Netflix because they already had the content and you could go back and watch something for the 18th time or whatever. And I wonder if Netflix isn't poised to, yeah, maybe get hurt a little bit by a slowdown, but also benefit because those of us who can't uh, see the new content because Hollywood won't crank out the new content are going to be satisfied again, Netflixing and uh, and chilling at home. And, and I just wonder if they're kind of poised to have it both ways because they've just been set up that way. I like that verb, Netflixing. Yeah. <laughs> Lexing. Uh one party not mentioned all this, which may benefit also Netflix, is indie filmmakers. They are not on strike, for the most part. You mean because they're not in the union? Yeah. The production companies are involved in this. I mean, some of the actors are, but they can still crank out content, and, and Netflix is one of the great destinations for that kind of stuff. Uh, reality... Uh, shows we think I think we're going to be buried in those it, as long as there's already been a call in that world to go out on strike too in uh, commiseration with uh, you know the screenwriters so 
it could, the whole thing could shut down. I note that Barry Diller, uh, who used to run Paramount, you know, he's, he's an old veteran of all this. He said if it goes on too long, it's gone on for, what, 50 days now? Well, there's the writers, and then recently SAG went out as well. Yeah, yeah but the writers, I think, is 50 days. SAG is like 10 days. Um, if this goes on too long, it could kill Hollywood. Uh, because the sheer delay of getting anything into production, getting it on the screen, would be so long that the revenues coming back to the studios uh, would be so tardy that it could crush some of the studios. Right, and you say studios, and then I realize they're all intertwined, but think about scripted television as well as movies. I mean, if there's if they're not around, people will find something else to do, and that's where I think the Netflixes of the world come in, um, and anyone who has a lot of content that's already there, and that becomes the habit, and that was the concern of the movie industry post-pandemic. Did we get into the habit of staying at home and i think that's going to be a concern are we going to get into the habit of being on netflix and i don't know TikTok and a couple of others instead of watching scripted television and movies and i think that's a big concern if this strike lasts long enough to where habits change yes and we saw habits begin to change radically during COVID. right it, it could happen again in a different form um interestingly diller also said he thought that one of the big objects of dispute, AI, uh, is actually overhyped and it won't replace human talent. I think actually AI may have a dangerous element in it. I was talking to a, a Valley veteran the other day and uh, telling him about how uh, a editor I know was creating a um, uh, bibliography for a book and she decided to try use chat to create a bibliography. Got all done. Two of the entries were fake. I don't know if I dis we you and I discussed this, but they were created from whole cloth. The the author, the publisher, the name of the book, the number of pages, everything else. And I said, I think that makes AI really dangerous if it's making up stuff. And she said, Oh, it's actually probably even worse because AI doesn't make up stuff. AI goes out in the world and gathers up stuff. And given the fact that 40% of all scientific and academic papers now are proven to be false, it just costs the job of the president of Stanford University, apparently. AI is just going out and gathering false stuff and assembling it, and it appears real. Well, I could see some real lawsuits coming out of that uh, if, you, if people depend upon false information created by AI. You don't have a lot of excuse if your name is on it as the author. Right. And some of these news organizations, you know, that are running low on money, especially the websites, and they're saying, okay, we're going to create our news with AI. It's just as dangerous because AI has been proven to be flawed and false. And I realize we humans are not perfect, but, you know, it is rare for a human lawyer to cite cases that never happened. But AI did that. It's rare for a human author to put together a bibliography of books that don't exist. That AI will do that. And I just think that the more we rely on this, the more we have to realize it's machine learning and it's learning everything all at the same time, including the information that isn't right. And uh, that's why it's dangerous. I absolutely agree. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, Tesla. Tesla's stock fell nearly 10% yesterday. Uh, 
after investors apparently didn't like the early results, but especially didn't like Elon Musk's commentary that uh, had to do with the Cybertruck and the planned robo-taxi-ready car. And the concern about the robo-truck was, yeah, he says they're going to make a lot of them this year and next year, but he wouldn't come out with any numbers. He seems to still be hedging on the on the Cybertruck. Uh, he did announce that um, Tesla had reported 470,000 vehicle deliveries in the second quarter, but said it's probably going to going to drop because of summer summer downtimes, and um, that the Cybertruck would be producing high volume next year, uh, but he didn't know how many. That sounds sketchy. I mean, you don't come out with numbers if you don't have the numbers, right? No, I mean, Elon Musk comes out with numbers when he doesn't have numbers all the time. What? Uh, he does half the time. Yeah, I mean, there's no other explanation. And, you know, I think the Tesla stock situation is a bit like Netflix. Partially, look, you know, there's some profit taking after a stock runs up so much. And like Netflix, Tesla has had a huge run up and it makes sense, you know, right. yeah, to, to take some profits off the table in an earnings report. But also, um, you know, it's a little bit of buy on the rumor, sell on the news. Uh, the rumor was that Tesla was going to have a perfect report, come out with all these cyber trucks, finally have a date, years delayed, by the way, and they still don't. And so for all the excitement um, of something that may sell a lot, who knows, and may be another vein of profit for the company, um, he couldn't deliver on when these trucks are going to be available and how much and, and all that stuff. And so the selling, I think, is a little bit of the 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 rumor was a little better than the news, um, and that makes sense. But yeah. uh, but look, you know, Musk is is both the savior and, and his own worst enemy, and and I think, um, Musk. yeah, exactly. So uh, it's been years with this Cybertruck, and you know, to Musk's credit, every Tesla car and SpaceX rocket that has been delayed eventually delivers and and is a success and makes a lot of money. Uh, so maybe the Cybertruck will too. But to his discredit, um, I don't know how else to say this. He lies to investors and the public when he says this is going to be ready at a certain time. And he's almost always wrong. And so that, I think, causes some people to say, well, you know what? It's time to take a little profit because he's been wrong. Uh, and so there is a risk in investing in in something like that. But look, I'll, be I'll believe I'll believe that the Cybertruck actually physically exists when I see one in Silicon Valley because you know the Silicon Valley names are at the top of the list. Right. They're going to get the first deliveries. They put in an order three years ago, waiting for this thing. I see new Rivian trucks every other day in Silicon Valley, and that's always been true. Any hot new vehicle you're going to see here on 280 or in downtown Palo Alto within days. I haven't seen a Cybertruck. Been waiting one, been waiting for one since the last decade. Right, and I, I don't know if it will be. Remember, with with Musk, it was often for the, you know, the Model X. I, I attended these things where they they give them out and you know ceremoniously hand out the you know the the first cars and and that kind of thing. Uh, we obviously haven't done that yet with the Cybertruck. I don't know if that's how they're going to do it. But right, we will see them here in Silicon Valley first. And uh, I have no doubt about that, um, but we haven't. And it's still a big mystery is how this thing works. Is it is it enough of a truck for truck owners? Clearly the Rivians, I've talked to truck owners who are real truck people. They like the Rivians. That's great. They feel good about no emissions. Um, yep. 
And yeah, the Cybertruck is still this bonkers looking vehicle that is still apparently desired by a lot of people. And the proof eventually will be uh, or not be in the pudding if we see them out on the road. Yeah, I mean, the Rivian's just different enough, the headlights and all that, that you can pick it out of a, out of a lineup of cars. If, if the Cybertruck shows up, we will all notice it instantly because it's weird. You know, it's a Transformers truck. And so, come on, come on, Elon, just deliver. Right. Uh, okay, just a few minor things, not minor, but small news items. Uh, the Dow rose more than 100 points yesterday, so that gave it a nine-day rally. That's the, this, I couldn't believe this, it's the first time since 2017. Yeah. This nine days of, of, of growth, and it was it was the first time in six years. I knew the market has been tough, but wow, that that's shocking. Um, yeah, and I think the numbers are really impressive. Uh, just given that the market, you know, as you speak, is like thirty five thousand. Some of the valuations of the companies that are leading the Dow upward, including a lot of these tech stocks, are extremely high. Um, and yet. Uh, there is this long streak of buying to the point where when a Netflix or a Tesla falls off, uh, people are, whoa, hey, wow, it fell. What's going on? And, happen. Right. And yet it always does. Uh, so I think overall the run is impressive. On day nine, did you say, of the Dow going, you know, the NASDAQ took a big drop. Yeah, NASDAQ fell 2% and, and Dow going. Right. Um, but uh, you know that's going to stop too. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not looking at these week at a time things for for the stock market. That's that's folly. Uh, but the overall trend is impressive enough to where to get back at the beginning of the show. I do think we're going to see some confidence on the VC part and the startup part, and I think we're going to start seeing some IPOs. So we'll add some new companies to the stock uh, market. Uh, another interesting item: uh, Satya Nadella, the um... CEO of Microsoft, under his tenure, while we really haven't been watching, at least I haven't, he joined in 2014. In the meantime, Microsoft's stock has risen a thousand percent. You know, I don't think we give this guy enough credit. I mean, we're always watching Valley companies, and we and we always, for a long time, I thought of Microsoft as basically a old company, you know, slowly dying. A thousand percent run up in stock. That's a hell of a thing. And um, he's gotten a billion dollars out of it in compensation, which I think he more than deserves. But that's an impressive number. It's and we've got to give Microsoft credit. Extremely impressive. And he has been amazing. And I, I can't think of another comparison other than to say, and, and you realize how crazy this would be as a scenario, if Hewlett-Packard suddenly turned things around and became the second most valuable company in the world, threatening to top a $3 trillion valuation, Microsoft yeah. was done as a growth company 10 years ago. You know, Absolutely. Gates stepped down, um, you know, Balmer had a run at it, and it, it, the stock price was done. They were dead money. And then Nadella comes in and really trims the sales, much like Steve Jobs did at Apple years and years ago made it a leaner company, and yet a much more successful company. It's been extremely, extremely impressive. Well, kudos to him. Um, two more quick items. Uh, the UPS strike, not as long as we're on strikes, 
uh, this show. The UPS strike starts August 1st, and it looks like it's actually going to happen. Uh, I read a very interesting commentary that said the UPS drivers ought to think twice before they walk because uh, UPS could reconfigure itself as a non-union company, and because of COVID and the an explosion of home deliveries, there is an entire population of skilled delivery drivers out there that UPS could reformulate itself hiring those individuals. Or in between, you could have the whole Teamster management violence of scabs and strikers and breaking the the picket line and all that. But it, it this thing we've been, it seems to me it's kind of been on the back burner. Oh yeah, UPS might strike. But, you know, we're coming up, we're within two, in 15 days now, 11 days now of this thing happening, and it looks like it's going to happen. And I think we all have to start thinking about the implications of that. Amazon's going to make out like a bandit because everything's going to shift. I mean, if Amazon wasn't already owning half the world, if it takes over the delivery market completely, uh, that will change the nature of a lot of things. So I'm curious what's going to happen here. I'm, I'm watching the day now. I don't know. Amazon's already gigantic. UPS is gigantic. UPS needs to take care of its workers, pay them well. You know, I mean, when people run from the truck to the door and then run back, to me, that's yeah. a failure. That's a failure of a company. Deliver it. Let's not be on the clock by every second. Uh, you can still get Oh, I hired those guys in the brown, you know, uniforms. They run up the driveway carrying 80-pound bags of uh, fertilizer and everything else. It's a pretty impressive sight. Uh, and, fi- them. Yes. and finally, um, this whole thing about onshoring, chip manufacturing, fabs and all that. Well, the big name in all that was, you know, uh, TSMC, to, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, the biggest chip builder in the world. And all the big announcements, they were going to create a gigantic fab in Arizona. Well, it's now been put on hold, uh, apparently because... Well, the company is citing the fact they can't find enough fab workers. So they may be building these $10 billion fabs, but if you can't man them, you're not going to make any chips. So anybody out there in the Valley who used to work at uh, AMD or Intel and retired, this may be the moment to take kind of get out of retirement and move to Arizona. This could be your big chance. So, Big chance to unretire and move to Arizona. Retire, well... We're all going to do that eventually, I'm afraid. Uh, that, that's it for now, folks. You can find us on the Silicon Valley Business Journal homepage as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And send us notes. Tell us what you think. Comment on YouTube. And all of you have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.